Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the fishing world today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both on and off the water. This episode is dedicated to wild steelhead around the world. Please take a moment to do your part and join one of the organizations who support these fantastic creatures. Skeena Wild, the Steelhead Society of BC, and the Skeena Watershed Conservation Coalition are all organizations I have personally worked with, and each of them is 100% devoted to doing what is right for our fish. Please reach out to support them in any way you can. Behind the walls of fame and glory live the men and women who are the true heroes of our natural world. In my eyes, Bruce Hill is very much one of those heroes. An activist, silent leader, respected conservationist, and father of two children who are just as active as he is, the hills have long kept the Skeena country safe from corporations looking to assault it. An honest man, Bruce understands the need for industry, but is currently appalled at the liquid natural gas project being proposed in northern BC, specifically on Lilu Island, the Skeena's most critical habitat to sensitive juvenile steelhead and salmon. In this episode, Bruce tries to educate me about some of his causes, both past and present, and he merely scratches the surface about something I hope to dive further into in future podcasts. One week after this podcast took place, BC had an election and its government changed. As this podcast will likely be on the internet for years to come, it will be interesting to see what sort of changes occur in the next little while. I have arranged an interview with a biologist working on this case, and I am currently looking for an LNG representative to also further discuss this with me. I've worked on conservation issues and fisheries issues 
up here for the past 25 years, off and on. I've worked for the Sierra Club and for the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society, and we had our own organization for a while, um, the Headwaters Initiative, and we recently amalgamated with Skidawal Conservation Trust. And uh, I've lived in Terrace since 1990 and in, in Canada since 1975. What brought you to Terrace? Um, fishing. I was uh, living in uh, central British Columbia and um, in the Burns Lake area, what they called the south side. I was living on near Cheslata Lake. And I was logging there. I'd been logging and working in the forest industry there for 15 years. And a friend of mine, I'd met this fellow, uh, Myron Kozak, who was um, a fishing guide. He fished, uh, he was guiding on the Balkley River, and he was uh, in the area doing some work with uh, local First Nations. And, and I had some friends who were well aware that I was tired of logging and sawmilling. And they suggested, you ought to have you know, meet this Myron fellow, and I did, and he said, yeah, he said, you know, I think I can get you a job guiding on the Balkley, and and then I, a friend of my partner in the business uh, had gone fishing in Terrace, and he said, well, this guy is fishing with, uh, wants to sell his business in Terrace, and one thing led to another, and I ended up buying a guiding outfit in Terrace, and going to work as a steelhead guide on the Balkley River in, I think it was 1989. I didn't know that. Yeah, and so, yeah. And um, that's how I ended up in Terrace. We uh, basically, the whole family moved to Terrace, and I took a crack at being a fishing guide and eventually discovered that uh, I had a friend, uh, Willie Sear, we called him Willie the Prick. Anyway, he, uh, he always he was always very frank with me. He said, "Why in the hell would you take your job to the river, Bruce?" And so I discovered I was one of those people that uh, uh, I thought I was a pretty good guide, but it really wasn't suited for me. So after a while, I sort of went into ecotourism and started working for EcoTrust and uh, on conservation issues and stuff, and got involved with the Steelhead Society, and that was uh, a better fit for me then. Guiding. So, going from guiding to conservation, I mean, the first thing I think of, apart from congratulations for following your integrity, Mm -hmm. the first thing I think of is major pay cut. So, did you manage to find a role? Well, yeah, actually, I think probably made more money in, well, they were both represented to pay cut from logging. Um, (laughs) Yeah. You know, and I think, you know, I think one of the great untold stories of salmon conservation is the our partners who uh, allow us to do it and support us while we're doing it and uh, yeah my my wife was very patient with me as I uh, suffered through fairly dramatic pay cuts for a long time right, fair enough. <laughs> got wrapped up in steelhead conservation so you bring the family over so you've got a wife you've got a daughter yeah any other children a son Okay, so there's you've got two two children. Yeah. Okay, so I mean, were Julia and your son around at this time when you were doing a lot of this? Yeah, of course. Yeah, they were growing up in Terrace, going to school, and they both. My daughter Julia works for uh, Skidawal Conservation Trust, and my son Aaron is now the executive director of Watershed Watch, which is probably leading salmon conservation organization in the Lower Mainland. Oh wow! And I should probably let my listeners know. I do a lot of work with Julia. I'm a huge fan of her 
Yeah. I really enjoy working with her. Yeah. And she is now the, she's basically the head of Skeeter Wild. Is she no, no, what, she's, what she's uh, the, uh, I think they call her operations manager or something. She's sort of second in command there. Uh, Greg Dox is the executive director. Right. So Greg and Julia. Yeah. And of course I'd always heard that you were her father and I never yeah. wanted to pull favors, but I was like, Hey Julia, do you think I can sit down <laughs> with your dad? And here we are on your birthday. Yeah. So thank you for taking the time to do this. Um, talk to me about where, I mean, you know, I have, obviously I have an agenda here. I want to talk about what's happening here in the Spina mm-hmm. region, but I just kind of want to build your credibility and explain to people kind of initiatives and, and things that you've really conquered, if you will, or explored in the past in the conservation world. So can I just get a brief resume? Yeah, well, it's, it's, I'll be as brief as I can. Um, <laughs> you can take your time. Um, I also was an activist. I came out of, you know, I was in California. I graduated from high school in, in California in the 1964 in the Bay Area. And the 60s Bay Area, of course, I ended up in Haight-Ashbury. And I was an activist in the 60s of the United States. I was, you know, when I was going to college, I I was uh, in the civil rights movement. And I was pretty involved in the civil rights movement. And um, and then, um, yeah, so, I mean, I, my background was, I had a background in activism. As I said, you know, I got, uh, ended up moving to Terrace. So I've, I've, I've worked... Uh, I ended up working for Ecotrust at about the same time, that same time that I was getting involved with the Steelhead Society of BC. And at that time, in the early 1990s, the Steelhead Society of BC was basically considered, it was probably the most effective conservation organization of all of BC. That and probably the Sierra Club at the time. Right. Mark Hume, the, you know, is well-known conservation writer and reporter in Canada, He's, he called us the small but mighty Steelhead Society. And at that time, Steelhead Society had, oh, I think, over 10 chapters. We had chapters in Japan. We had chapters in Germany. What? We had chapter in the United States. Pete Soverell was the head of that chapter. We had 1,800 members. And um, we were a pretty form- formidable organization. It was sort of the golden age of the Steelhead Society. So after working with the Steelhead Society, where did you go from there? Well, I, I was working for Ecotrust, and I ended up working for Ecotrust. I they I started a um, with Ecotrust support. I was the founding executive director of a First Nations community-based ENGO called the Nanakila Institute, working with the Heisler First Nation in Kitimat. Mm-hmm. And basically, Ecotrust and the Heisla at that time were partnered in trying to protect the Kitlope Valley. And the Kitlope Valley is, uh, at that time, what still is, is the largest unlawed temperate raincoast watershed left in the world, Mm -hmm. Uh, about 800,000 acres. And, And we did that. So I was very fortunate. I came after 15 years in the you know, so in the logging and forest industry, uh, I ended up working with one of the most sophisticated conservation organizations in North America. And the learning curve was very steep, but I signed up um, working with some of the great conservationists in North America and learning a lot. And with Gerald Amos at the time was the chief 
in Kitimat Village, and Gerald and I since then have worked together for 25 years. And I learned a lot from him. So probably I think it'd be fair to say that my history is is uh, a lot of being in the right place at the right time. I've been kind of lucky that way. You're not a biologist as such. No, I'm a I'm a journeyman millwright. Right, and yeah. activism to me always sounds really aggressive. Mm-hmm. When you were working with these conservation groups, mm-hmm. what was your role? I mean, if you were to be specific, what would you say that you did? <clears throat> Were you on the front so line? what? So yeah, I mean, with the uh, Eco Trust, you know. So I think the overwhelming characteristic of my conservation work has been working with First Nations and for First Nations. Um, that's what my history with CPAWS, the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society, was working with the Taltan First Nation and in the Cascadene. Uh, in northern British Columbia when I was the northern conservation director for them. Mm-hmm. Um, the Headwaters Initiative was entirely based on working with First Nations. Okay. And the work that Skeeter Wild does is uh, much of it, if not most of it, is uh, our conservation partners. Or the, I don't think that's the right word. The We work extensively with First Nations. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's where the power lies. Uh, but that's... For any number of reasons. There's legal reasons why First Nations have power here, but there are also ethical and cultural reasons why they do. Uh, They have a profound commitment to keeping the Skeena intact and the North intact. And um, so that drives conservation in the North, that, uh, that fact. You know, I always hear people talk about relationships with First Nations mm-hmm. around the world. It's always a controversial discussion. Mm-hmm. But here, I really feel like there is a, a really unique relationship of people trying to move forward to do better for the environment. How does that, how does this community differ from other communities when it comes to uh, working alongside the First Nations? So, um... Is that an ignorant question? No, no. I mean, I think it's 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 um, it's a really pertinent question. There's something um, a lot of people in the conservation world ask that same question: like, why are why are these grassroots organizations and First Nations in the Skeena reaching these astounding conservation outcomes that are globally significant and um, I think a lot of it result, revolves around water and salmon. Salmon are foundational to to the identity of the communities up here. I mean, astoundingly so with First Nations and very much so with even the settler, non-First Nations communities here. Um, and it reminds me of Ecotrust tried to start this campaign once. It was called Salmon Nation. It was was only partly successful. Um, it was a beautiful idea, but that's what happened here in the Skeena. And I think, as, as you know, the, the Gordon and Benny Moore Foundation has made a tremendous investment in salmon conservation in British Columbia, and particularly in the Skeena. And when they've decided to make that investment, it was informed by a very calculated and fact-based analysis of where they could make major investments and get to some pretty good outcomes insofar as 
protecting and defending or or to preserving the abundance and diversity of Pacific salmon. And so they worked everywhere from Russia to the... But they didn't work a lot south of the Skeeda. And what they found out was what they saw was that the Skeena was the southernmost watershed left in North America that had really significantly healthy populations of wild salmon and where they felt that they could they could get huge outcomes and they did and the unique thing about the Skeena is, is that there's a significant human population here mm-hmm. that's very diverse, resource economy based. 30, 40% of the population is First Nations, and there's healthy salmon populations left. Not as healthy as they used to be, but still healthy. And you wouldn't have the a salmon, you know, sport fish salmon economy up here, steelhead based economy up here, if the fishing wasn't still really good. Mm-hmm. And it is. Mm-hmm. So this was a unique place um, where there was significant human populations and significant salmon populations still living together. And so if you're going to figure out can salmon and humans coexist in this millennia, this is a place where it's going to be decided. The other factor was is that there's a tremendous amount of natural resources up here. I mean, of course, it was logs for a while and trees and fiber, but there's, there's gold here, which has always driven human greed for millennia. And there's copper, and there's coal, and there's natural gas, and there's oil. And we are between some of the great deposits of hydrocarbons in the world in the Pacific coast uh, that people want to use as a corridor to Asian markets. And so we're, we're right in the headlights and we're, it's just an accident of history and geography and circumstance, but there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of focus on mosquito from industry and there's a lot of focus on mosquito from conservation. So it's been a battleground and um, it's been unique. I have a friend of mine characterize it. You know, what's gone on here is the Skeena's immune response system. The Skeena, it's been a um, difficult place for corporations to have a free reign. And, you know, I think the uh, Sacred Headwaters fight, nobody ever beat Shell Oil. Nobody's ever beat Shell Oil everywhere in the world, but we did. We did, I remember that. You know, and, um, and it was that combination of First Nations and being supported by the settler community and the international conservation community, very few jurisdictions have beat fish farms, but we did. Uh, And it was the same coalition, Friends of Wild Salmon. That was the creation of Friends of Wild Salmon. Andrew Williams was his idea, and uh, 5,000 people signed up for Friends of Wild Salmon in the salmon farm fight, and there was about 50% of them were native people and 50% of them were non-native. And so there's, there's these examples and more. Enbridge, the whole fight against that pipeline was led by people in the region and indigenous people in the region. You know, like, I mean, some of the great 
battle lines there. I mean, the Yinka Dena Alliance, the Kerry Sukana communities are not in the Skeena, but they they were fundamental to saying, you know, signing on 160, you know, First Nations communities in, in Canada uh, saying, no, you know, you cannot cross these rivers with that pipeline. And the, you know, little grassroots organization in Kitimat took on Enbridge, Canada's largest pipeline company that has partnered with you know, 10 partners in the Enbridge project, Sinox, Sinopec, Shell, you know, BP, like these are the richest corporations of the world. And a little grassroots bunch of people in Kitimat took them on in a plebiscite and beat them. And nobody had it. Nobody, nobody thought they could do it. But they did it. So there's something special happening on Mosquito. And, 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 and even before that, in the Wild Steelhead campaign, you know, like, I mean, it was uh, everybody at that time in the early 90s said, you can't, you, you can't fix DFO. You know, we had a massive commercial fishery on the Skeena. There was too many boats. Um, that's just for my, some people listening. So the mm-hmm. Department of Fisheries. Yeah, that's our Federal Department of Fisheries and Oceans. And so in the early 90s, we had a thing called the Wild Steel Campaign. It was, won by local, was run by local chapters of the Steelhead Society. We took on DFO over reforming the fishing practices on the Skeena in Steelhead were being impacted heavily. Coho were being impacted heavily. Wild sockeye were being impacted and chum salmon. We took that on and everybody said that we couldn't do it, but we did do it. And um, led to the Skeeta fishing plan and this, you know, 50% reduction in the overall catch of steelhead. And you can see it in the statistics that, you know, probably the, you know, in, in the early 90s we had a few times when the number of gill netters on the approaches to the Skeena were 1,500 boats. And they were fishing in enhanced babine stock, and it was having its effect. At the same time, these boats were not the boats that were fishing in the 30s and 40s. You know, these were little wooden gill netters with little four-cylinder Chrysler Crown engines. These were big fiberglass boats with 400-horsepower diesels and fishing you know, very sophisticated Japanese monofilament gill nets, and they were getting a lot better at catching fish. And it was just, DFO knew they, they had to, they had a problem on their hands, and we sort of, we came along at the right time. And so we, um, we did a reform. There was, there was, the commercial fishing paid a big price mm-hmm. uh, doing that. A lot of people, um, I mean, they a lot of opportunities um, in the short term, at least, were lost on the Skeena. And, uh, but that's another story. If you were to explain to somebody who lived in, I don't know, Ohio, what's happening here right now, how would you explain it? So, right now, the Skeena, some of the largest hydrocarbon deposits in the world, in the Pacific Coast. And so, there are 18 massive gas projects, LNG projects, liquefied natural gas projects proposed for this region. And, of course, the tar sands oil producers have proposed a pipeline. And 
Enbridge Pipeline, the Northern Gateway Pipeline, that will go from the tar sands to Kitimat and cross a thousand rivers and streams of the Mackenzie, Fraser, and Skeena watershed. So the tar sands in Alberta. The tar sands in Alberta. And so the tar sands in Alberta is desperate to have an outlet to Asia for their oil. And they're basically all of their plans for expansion depends upon finding that that outlet. And so the the battles that we're facing right now are these hydrocarbon projects. So the 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 general public and especially the um, public in the north and First Nations have been adamantly opposed to having a major oil pipeline cross this region. And it's um, no one has ever built a uh, oil pipeline through a region this rugged to boot. With this many river crossings and going through mountain ranges like the coast mountains that are very, very geologically unstable. So, and then the whole issue of takers on, you know, basically two or three or 400 super takers going through the Great Bear Rainforest every year in some of the most dangerous waters in the world. So it's a bad idea. It's a stupid idea. And so we've been right up to our necks fighting these Enbridge and their project. And Enbridge has, um, and I think it's really interesting for people to know what we're up against is Enbridge created a fund when they tried to get what they call social license to build this project of $100 million just to convince the public not to build the pipeline, but just to convince the public that it was safe and it was okay to do so. And they got $10 million apiece from major oil companies in Asia and in North America, like Sinopec, the you know, state-owned oil company of China, to, they got them all to contribute $10 million apiece to create this $100 million fund just to get through the permitting process. And the, um, nobody, nobody in the history, we, we, we don't know of any project anywhere in the world that has ever spent this kind of money trying to get the public's permission to do something. They knew it was a stupid idea. Can you explain, though, when you say $100 million to get the public's permission, do you mean via a marketing campaign? Yes. Okay, so this is just simply in marketing? Is This This is this is marketing, consultants, uh, communications consultants, lawyers, uh, uh you know, you, you would, they would have open house meetings in Terrace and you go to these meetings and there would be 30 people all wearing Enbridge t-shirts and consultants just to, you know, all making hundreds of dollars per day just to convince 50 people that would come to the open house of Terrace that, you know, this is a great idea. I mean, they, they were shoveling money off the back of a truck. This is what we were up against, you know, and... Um, these companies are used to doing what they want to do whenever they want to do it. So Enbridge was one fight, and we've we've handed them a shit kicking, you know, and um, that was good. But now the LNG was different. How did you hand them a shit kicking? Well, we've uh, denied them the social license, and we've you know, like, I mean, one of the things that, you know, the, the, the Headwaters Initiative was we've worked with First Nations and provided them with information and, and capacity to 
learn more about uh, the project and so that they can exercise an internationally recognized right to free prior informed consent. And what did this cost you guys? I mean, not $100 million. No, we've been supported by uh, different organizations mm -hmm. to do that. And there's been a lot, you know, I mean, it's been a huge battle and the federal government's not happy with what conservation organizations have done and they've passed legislation to hamper that work. I mean, it's, it's complicated and it's... Uh, it's the nitty-gritty guts of hardcore conservation in a resource-based economy with indigenous people and oil companies going mano a mano. Uh, it's, it's as, uh, yeah, it's the trenches in 2015. This is the trenches. So then uh, the other thing now is we have LNG. And so LNG is um, some of the projects are even bigger than Enbridge. The particular one that we are involved in right now is hugely important and probably represents the biggest threat to skeeter salmon that's ever existed. So what it is is that Malaysian, the state-owned oil and gas corporation of Malaysia, Petronas, uh, or Petronas, is trying to build a massive, up to $37 billion project. It's one of the largest LNG projects on Earth. And where they want to build the plant in Prince Rupert is on Lilu Island and on the uh, eelgrass beds that are right off of Ilu, Lilu Island in the estuary of the Skeeta River that happens to be the most critically important estuary habitat for Skeeta salmon. All Skeeta salmon use these eelgrass beds in this foreshore habitat around Lilu Island as they leave freshwater and have that two, three, four week adjustment period as they adapt to salt water, which is the most critically delicate phase of a juvenile salmon's life history. They want to, this is where they want to dredge and dry pilings and build a huge industrial plant. So Lilu Island will have about, I think it's 150 acres, and 125 acres of it will be paved and flattened. Can you paint a picture for, for people? So. I mean, imagine someone's never even heard of the Skeena before. Mm -hmm. Does it have the first or the second largest run of salmon in it? In it's, the, it's the second largest run of salmon in Canada. To the Fraser, right. Yeah. And, um, Which you know, is anywhere, huge. It, well, I mean, it's, it's a big deal for us. Canada's famous for salmon. Yeah. So you can imagine the second largest run of salmon. It's, it's a, it's a, yeah, it's, I think it's one of the ten largest salmon ecosystems in the world. Right. And it's, you know, up to 10 million or more salmon in some years. Um, huge producer. I mean, of course, it's you know famous for its uh, Chinook salmon and, and, and steelhead and um, used to be an enormous coho producer. Uh, still produces in a good year of, you know, have a run of 3 million sockeye salmon, have runs of 7, 8 million pink salmon in, in a big year. Mm -hmm. The tributaries of the Skeeda are legend. Yes. The Copper River, the Kispiox River, the Bulkley, the Maurice, the Sustat, the Babine. These are... These are... Legends. Yeah, the temples of steelhead fishing, you know, which is a big deal for a lot of people. And... Um, what would an LNG plant... I mean, so, I have questions about liquid natural gas. I'm, I'm totally ignorant to this, Bruce. Enlighten mm -hmm. me. What would an LNG... What, why do they need to be there? And what is an LNG plant going so, to do? So, 
Oh, so there's a demand for there's a demand for natural gas all around the world. Japan, especially, has been a huge consumer of natural gas, especially after the Fukushima disaster, and they shut down all their nuclear plants. So they've been generating all their electricity with natural gas. So they became a huge importer of natural gas, and you cannot transport natural gas in its natural state. It's just there's it take it would take the ships would have to be ten miles long. So you have to condense the gas, and you condense natural gas by cooling it, not by compressing it, but by cooling it. And so you have to refrigerate the gas. So if you reduce it in temperature to, I think it's 100 and minus 150 or something, you it, it goes to one six hundredth of its volume. So Whoa. And so you, um, so the gas... Um, which, by the way, most of the gas that would be used is produced by fracking. I was going to say, do they extract so there's, fracking? Yeah, there's a big issue there. <laughs> and so pipelines across all these rivers and everything else, there's huge linear disturbance and have its own impacts. But then when you get it to the coast, like this gas, it's not so simple as just liquefied. It has to be processed. It has to have sulfur removed from it. It has to have impurities removed from it. There's a lot of very nasty stuff in, in natural gas uh, that has to be removed before it's condensed and sent to its ultimate destination. It requires tremendous amounts of power. It's one of the most energy-intensive industrial processes on the planet. It's almost equivalent to producing aluminum. And so a large LNG plant like Petronas, if Petronas went to a four, what they call a four-train plant, the um, they would build it as big as they could, uh, it would use about the same amount of power as an aluminum smelter. So where do you get that power from? Well, you, what they have proposed to do is use the burn up about 20% of that gas that's being delivered to provide the energy to do the cooling, which creates a huge carbon footprint in yeah. a greenhouse gas. So it's a, it's a huge climate change issue for Canada. Some of the power requirements in the in the Peace River country and what they call the oil patch in Canada, those are huge, enormous power requirements there. So the government has proposed to build a massive dam on the Peace River, Site C, and dam um, 50,000 acres of some of the richest farmland in Canada. I could go on. So what we're, we're all in on now is the Petronas LNG plant. It's, it's going to have potentially have enormous negative impacts to skeena salmon. And we would be basically severely altering and damaging the most critical salmon habitat that exists for skeena salmon. But why are they saying it has to and go on Lulu? Well, because, because it's convenient for them to do that. So all of these companies are driven by how much money they can make. That's what why they exist. And for some reason... An independent agency of the federal government called the Prince Rupert Port Authority ignored all of the existing science. So we had studies done from the early 1970s when an oil ports were being proposed. And the science, the DFO, the federal government, the Fisheries Department of Canada, with some of the top scientists and fishery scientists of the world, studied Flora Bank, Lilu Island, and they published a paper that says nothing should ever be developed here. There should never be industrial development in this area. 
And this agency of the federal government, the Port Authority, ignored that science, thought that their mandate was was to promote industrial development, and um, easy place to do it, uh, a cheap place to do it would be Lilu Island. And so they went to Petronas, or Petronas came to them, and somebody said, what about Lilu Island? Oh, yeah, Lilu Island's great. Go ahead and do it. And it was just a clusterfuck from day one. Mm-hmm. And, um, and laws were broken. Like, the, the, the First Nations were never consulted about the siting um, they, until after the decision was made, um, which is contrary to Canadian law. And it's been the provincial government, because of campaign promises made in the last that, you know, these outrageously, I don't know how to term them. I mean, whether they were lies or, or the result of incredible stupidity and naivety, I, God only knows. But we were promised in the last election 100,000 jobs, $100 billion, the provincial debt to be erased, uh, from LNG development. As it turns out, we don't have enough gas to build the three to five plants that the provincial government said they wanted to build. And in the window of opportunity has passed, the gas prices collapsed. So in order to, be, to, to, to keep Petronas interested, we basically had to give away the farm. So recently, the provincial government signed a deal with Petronas that basically... The, commits the BC taxpayer paying for the entire pipeline in the plant. One hundred percent of the capital cost of building the plant in the pipeline, which could go as high as thirty-seven billion dollars, is recovered by deferred revenue from the royalties due to the people of British Columbia for the gas. And so we pay for the plant. We were promised a hundred thousand jobs, but. The recent uh, federal legislation in the last four or five years limited the number of temporary foreign workers that could work on a project to 20%. But Petronas couldn't accept that. So Petronas forced our premier to go to the federal government and lobby the federal government for an exemption from that federal law so that up to 70% of the workers, these 100,000 jobs that we were supposed to get, are going to go to foreign temporary foreign workers. It goes on and on and on and on. Coming up, Bruce summarizes the LNG debate and shares some food for thought about commercial fishermen. Again, please take a moment to check out Skeena Wild to see how you can help them. Why is there not outright? I mean, does this mean that taxpayers from Toronto, for example, are going to be paying for this? No, it's pretty much the liability to the BC taxpayer. So why are people in in Surrey not freaking out about this? Well, it's it's um, there's a lot of things going on in Canada right now, and it's the age of the internet. There's a you know, like I mean, if you want bad news, you can just go on you know Facebook and you get lots. It's difficult to communicate. It's been one of our challenges is to communicate the absurdity. And it's pretty hard to, I mean, it's like, it's, I mean, it's so absurd. It's so far-fetched that, I mean, part of the problem is, is you tell people this and they look at you blankly and say, well, that couldn't be true. Yeah. Nobody could be that stupid, right. <laughs> you know, but, you know, it, it is a fact that we basically pay for the all of the capital investment. So what would we actually be getting out of this? Um... 
you would after the capital costs are recovered. Oh, the other thing was is the original plan was is there the revenue the um, the royalties on the gas were set at we're going to be seven percent or like a one point five percent plus seven percent. The one point five percent would always be in place, so that would be revenue to the government, and the seven percent would only kick in after the capital costs were recovered through deferred royalties. That wasn't good enough for for, for Tronus, and then so like. Um, that would have they would have recovered the capital cost in about seven or eight years, but Petronas didn't want to pay taxes seven years from now. They wanted to pay taxes royalties fifteen years from now. So they forced the provincial government into lowering the royalties to three and a half percent. So they're just making out like bandits here. Well, it's it's the only. I mean, nobody wants nobody wants to build an LNG plant in British Columbia at present prices. I mean, all of this LNG rush started when LNG was at fifteen and sixteen dollars. It's under ten now. You know, these companies can't make a profit at these numbers. That's why you know there's you know there's other idiosyncrasies of Canadian law. For instance, like the the LNG plant that's proposed for Kitimat, they've been actually cutting right away and everything else, but they don't have any agreements in place. With on the on the customer side, they don't have customers for this gas at prices where they can make money. But Canadian law requires that construction begins within five years of you have to show that you started to build a thing or you lose your permit. So they they've gone through the environmental review processes, got their permits, but in order to keep those permits, they had to start. So they've started as slowly as possible, which is not all that slow cutting right away and stuff like that. So we have pipeline right aways cut for projects that may not go ahead. Thousands of hectares of pipeline right aways cut through the mountains in Kitimat for a project that may never be built and there are no customers for the gas right now because of this idiosyncrasy of Canadian law. The absurdities of the whole thing um, are beyond belief. You know, like, and plus, we've had geoscientists tell us well, you know, actually, there's not enough gas for all of these plants. Like, and so... Well, how many it, plants are there? Well, there's 18 now. proposed, but the government wanted to see three or five built. Okay. And so... And that was on Lilu? Well, that? there's some Kitimat. There's there's uh, Lilu. There's some on Lacrolams. There's some uh, down Portland Canal. There's are they all Petronas? How many... BP, Shell, Chevron... Apaches. So. You're a smart man. You seem reasonable. You believe in compromise, I'm sure. Yeah. We still drive trucks and boats, and I love that argument. You know, as soon as I post this podcast, I'll have a bunch of people saying, oh, you drive your boat and you live half the year in Australia. What's so, the compromise, Bruce? Well, the, 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 there have been different compromises proposed. So our position at Skeeter Wild is we're not opposed to LNG. We don't have a position on it. Like, um, it's not for our place to... <laughs> there are other realities on the Skeena. Number one is the, 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 the poverty of First Nations and what's been done to First Nations. And one of our supporters frames it this way, is poverty sucks. So... First Nations, a lot of First Nations have uh, signed on to LNG. And there's a reasons why they've done that, you know? Like, I mean, the LNG companies have 
sat back and watched Enbridge make every mistake possible with First Nations, and they've they are um, much more proactive in um, in um, seeking out partnerships with First Nations, and they've been successful in many cases in doing that. Um, there's not been a great amount of information or balanced information given to not only First Nations but all the communities about how realistic these projects are and what the impacts might be of those, especially in the case of Patronus and Lilu Island. Um, so, yeah, we recognize uh, we, some First Nations, are totally opposed to any pipelines crossing their territory. And some nations have signed on deals and said, you know, like, get out of our way. You know, we want our kids to have jobs. So it's complicated. What's the major factor or, or the commonality that you're seeing between the tribes who, or is it tribes or bands? Tribes. Uh, first, we call First Nations, or they're, they're, they often, you know, it's, it has different iterations. You know, it could be band councils, it could be tribal councils, it could be family groupings, or, or you know, depending on the First Nations. They all have different systems of uh, traditional governance. Is there is there a commonality, though, or a common trait to the people who are for it and who are against it? Yeah, there is. You know, the thing about it is the salmon binds us all together. You can, First Nations uh, on the Skeena, salmon is absolutely fundamental to their culture, and they're pretty fierce about defending it. And so even the, the, the First Nations that have signed on to LNG deals are trying to do the best they can by salmon and trying to protect it. And uh, so that binds us all together. And I think that that is what the impacts of salmon, potential impacts of salmon from the Patronus project is is basically an insurmountable obstacle for Patronus. Like they have run into a wall now and, and it's gonna be difficult if not impossible for them to proceed with this project. It's like Enbridge, though. How do you get them to recognize that they've lost, that it's too late? Uh, and that is the, that's the long-term, gritty, hard work of conservation. You know, like, you got to keep giving them gut shots. You got to keep beating them until they say, oh, I think I lost this fight. So they <laughs> you know? are still trying. Oh, yeah. They haven't, you know, they, they, you know they're going to, you know, Lilo occupy. Lilo Island is occupied now by traditional the the um, you know the local um, the first station that uh, has rights of title to Lilo Island the Lakwalams uh, community has said no to the provincial government they turned down 1.1 billion dollars this is a small community it's a tiny community what tiny community it's the largest reserve on the north coast it's just, you know several thousand people but they turned down 1.1 billion dollars jeez good for them and and um, because of salmon, and that's the heart and soul of conservation on the Skeena is the ability of these communities to do that, and it's unique. I think somewhat unique to the Skeena. Salmon is a big deal here. Yeah, salmon are a big deal here, and we are a salmon salmon based community. This region, this watershed, thinks like a watershed when it comes to salmon, and it crosses borders. You know, like. You know, you could have the most outrageous, you know, rough-edged redneck, but when it comes to salmon, man, they'll stand shoulder to shoulder with the the first nations and say no to salmon farms. They'll say no to Enbridge, and they'll 
eventually they are going to say no to, you know, Patronus. So when I ran into you at Bob's place, you said that there were some major things happening. What's the big? What's the latest news? Well, um, well, one thing is is that there was a uh, huge two-page or two um, two-day expose of Patronus came in that showed that uh, what we knew to be the case is that they are one of the most poorly run, corrupt oil and gas companies in Asia. Well, that's not a surprise. With massive, massive, massive problems in their governance structures, in their maintenance, um, in their engineering. Um, there's um, the <clears throat> Petronas is the state-owned oil company in Malaysia. They report directly, not to the Malaysian parliament, but to the the um, president's office. The president is currently under suspicion or indictment for, for taking seven hundred million dollars from somebody somewhere. The you know, the reports basically Petronas's budgets for maintenance and engineering and everything else are decided by Malaysian bureaucrats, not by Petronas engineers and stuff. So um, so it's 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 just a, it's a very badly run company. And the so there's there was a leaked document. There was an audit done of their engineering and their safety procedures and their maintenance procedures and everything else on their own facilities, existing facilities in Malaysia, three different ones. It was done by an independent engineering company. Somehow got leaked to the major newspapers in Canada, and they they brought it out last week, and it was huge. And it just uh, caused a huge reaction from the uh, prime, the premier's office, and you know we had the minister responsible for LNG in British Columbia say, "Oh, not to worry, it's not going to happen here. We have the highest standards and everything else." Well, the fact of the matter is, is an LNG plant has never been built in BC, and we not only don't have the highest standards, we don't have any fucking standards. Mm-hmm. It's just a joke from day one. So, yeah, that was a gut shot to Petronas. The other big development was is that the the highest ranking chief, one of the highest ranking chiefs in the in the Simpson nation, the what's Lakwalam's community is the you know what they call the nine allied tribes, Simpson nation. Donald Wesley, who's by the way a Skeeter River gill netter, has said uh, you can't harm Skeeter salmon. No, and he's occupied. He's gone. And he owns the island. I mean, it's uh, him and his. Well, actually, there's he's a, has a higher ranking, but him and the in the in the chief who's who's directly responsible for Lilo Island have occupied the island and said it's ours. You can't, so they're living on it. And when did they start living on it? Well, it's about a month ago, and so what is Petros? You know, they're out there now, and um, and then Lakwalams. Um, our understanding is that they broke off negotiations. Uh, any further negotiations with Petronas. You know, Lakwalams has taken a very reasonable position. They said, we're not opposed to LNG, but not on Lilu Island. And basically, Petronas has come out and said, well, it's too late. Uh, we can't change sites. And so it seems like the provincial government and uh, Petronas are all in. We want to do it on Lilu because it's we can make more money doing it on Lilu. And... Um, they're being told, no, you have to do it somewhere else or not at all. Do you think there's a place that they could do it and have it be safe, relatively safe? Safer. Safer? Absolutely. I mean, there's other... The thing about it is, is it's not a simple issue. It's not as simple as just 
and it's tough choices for us. I mean, you know, as conservationists, uh, there are enormous greenhouse gas questions around LNG production. Like, if LNG, the LNG industry as proposed by the BC provincial government would have about two-thirds of the climate change impacts of the entire tar sands. It's almost as bad as the tar sands. BC, I mean, even with one plant or two plants, is probably going to be absolutely impossible for BC to meet any kind of realistic greenhouse gas targets that might be the international community might come in, come up with. Um, impossible. So, and in response to that, the BC, the current BC government has exempted LNG impacts from any calculations as to BC's climate change impacts, which is, it's like, I mean, it's kind of whacked. It just sounds so corrupt to me. Well, yes, it's, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, this is... What if after the 19th, the government... What if there's a change or a shift in our government? Well, part of the problem, part of the problem with LNG is, is that the the opposition party, the NDP in British Columbia, has fully supported the government in their position as LNG out of fear of being against development and against jobs. And so, normally, usually in BC, what we call the loyal Her Majesty's loyal opposition. Their job is to question and ask questions of the government in power and to oppose. And not adamantly, they don't have to oppose everything, but they chose not to, not only not to oppose the liberal governments, and when we just for your listeners, the liberal government in BC is not very liberal. They're basically a very, it's a right wing government conservative government and um, so they've chose not only not to oppose it but they have very aggressively supported the LNG policies up until that document about Petronas's corruption came out Oh, okay. so that's forced their hands to uh, and we've I personally have uh, been on a crusade to smarten this dumbasses up but like (laughs) anyway yeah so it's been a difficult Difficult issue for conservation organizations in Skeena Wild to deal with, but we've by being science based, we 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 supported the science that was done on the estuary that confirmed the the nineteen seventy three federal studies that this is a critically important area. The BC universities are out there, and the Skeena Fisheries Commission, the First Nations. Uh, fisheries Authority on the Skeena, the Upper River Skeena, the Lakwalams Fisheries Team were out there um, with university scientists, and they confirmed that this is the most critically important habitat in the entire watershed. Yeah, so we've we've you know by providing people information, by providing people balanced information about what some of the risk and rewards and in in potential impacts of this is people have are waking up to the fact that this is a very very dangerous project and so it's what we do up here i mean it's it's grindingly difficult work like i mean it's not as easy as you know putting out endless press releases you know the stephen harper knows that the hippies in 
you know, on the left coast are pissed off at them. Um, you, you have to be now fact-based. You have to be smart about your communication strategies. You have to build trusting and long-term relationships with First Nations because that's where the power lies. That's where the legal power lies. That's the reality of conservation work on Mesquina in 2015. And then and, and we, we've... Uh, I think we've started to figure it out. We've uh, our relationships with First Nations are respectful, and and uh, it's working to a certain extent. Um, it's hard work. What would you like to see myself and people who are listening to this do? What can we do? I'm going to be really frank with you. Yeah. Um, I was I, I I played a huge role, and I don't want to blow smoke up my own ass or toot my own horn too much, but it is your birthday. Go we, for it. We, we, you know, like we we worked hard and we 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 inflicted enormous damage on the commercial fishery. It, it had to change, but we have always been the sport fishing community has always been insensitive to the sacrifices that were made by the commercial fishing fleet in BC, and. Most of the the boats that are left out there are First Nations people. The guy that's occupying Lilu Island and protecting the future of the steelhead fishery on the Skeena, the man who stepped up to the plate, the man who has lost his livelihood, taken a tremendous financial beating, Donnie Wesley, is a gillnetter. You know, and it's and and quite frankly, you know, like I've I've raised millions and millions of dollars of conservation. We raised millions of dollars. It was sport fishermen who supported the initial reforms on the Skeena to a great extent. But right now, the sport fishing community is doing jack shit to support conservation in BC on salmon conservation, and it pisses me off. You know what? Um, you know, we have billionaires and millionaires. You know, running around the Skeena, catching these fish, and there's a gillnetter who probably makes $20,000 a year at a good season that's making sure that they have fish to, to, to fish for. And it, 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 that situation is kind of ticking me off. You know, it's time uh, um, sport fishermen step up to the plate and start supporting Skeeter Wild in in. Skeena conservation and the First Nations that are doing, you know, like who's who's moving the the the, the fisheries upriver into selective fisheries? Lake Babby and First Nations, the Get Now First Nations. Who's doing the science on the Skeena that 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 is forcing DFO to uh, to uh, you know hold the line on on the wild salmon policy and it's Skeena First Nations. Who's, who's sitting in those meetings in these tough, gritty, bloody meetings every year trying to get the, 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 the Department of Fisheries Oceans to keep the exploitation rates on sockeye down, which are, which are parallel to the exploitation rates on steelhead? It's Greg Knox in the executive director of Skeeter Wild. He's the guy that's, that's that these brutally tough confrontations and meetings where he's vilified and I mean it's, it's heartbreakingly difficult work you know it's Skeeter Wild that's doing that it's Skeeter Wild that's protecting these um, the interest of these lodges and everything else and we're just not getting the help the financial help from the sport fishing community we should you've been a great help you know and 
it's not like that, that there's no help coming from them. Uh, Patagonia and Yvonne Chouinard has been consistently absolutely brilliant with their commitment to First Nations and thing. But you know what? The rest of them got to step up to the plate now. Is it money? You know? Well, sure, it's money. You know, like it takes money to do this. You know, like, I mean, you can't expect people to work on conservation full time. And what, what, what are we, how are we supposed to feed our families? You know, like, I mean, we, we don't, you know, uh, we don't make huge salaries, you know, in the conservation field. We make, you know, about what a school teacher would make or a, not as much as a factory worker or a mechanic, you know, but like, was fair enough. We, we love the work and everything else, but, you know, like, I mean, we do have to, we do have to feed our families, you know, and support ourselves. But that's not the issue. I mean, it's, it's you know, the foundations and other people, you know, we, we're okay that way. But, you know, Donnie Wesley needs a boat out there. They need a boat to get back and forth. It's time for the sport fishing community to recognize that, uh, you know, we're all in this together. It's time to step up to the plate. You know, I'm not asking for money for Skeena Wild particularly or specifically, but it's time for sport fishermen to show the generosity that they showed during the wild steelhead campaign when we had to make adjustments to the way that the commercial fishery operated on Mesquina. And, and, and also to recognize that um, the, the remnants of that, you know, we had 50 other boats fishing the Mesquina then. We have at most about 300, okay? Steelhead are doing better now than they did 20 years ago. You know, the, the, the lodges are making money you know, they're booked. You know, the guides are doing fine. The The steelhead economy has tripled in size. You absolutely cannot demonstrate any conservation problem with steelhead. Yeah, the commercial guys catch steelhead. Um, I don't like it. I'm not happy about it. They don't particularly want them. But it's, we're not going to, we're not going to eliminate the gillnet fishery. It's time for people to get off of that kick. We won that battle. We won that battle. Those commercial fishermen that are left are our allies in conservation, and we need to support them because they got our backs now. They have our backs now. The guy that's protecting the skeeter right now, who's standing up, manning up, and protecting all of the salmon in the skeeter, is a skeeter river gillnetter, and his name is Donnie Wesley. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Be sure to tune in next time when I sit down with Trey Combs to learn more about his adventures in both the salt and freshwater worlds.